Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. This episode is brought to you by Kender Tires. With over 60 years of experience in manufacturing tires, Kenda has been offering high quality rubber products for bicycles, cars, light trucks, motorcycles, ATVs, trailers, carts, golf carts. The list goes on since 1962 with offices and factories across Asia, North America, Europe. Kenda distributes its products globally and employs more than 10,000 people. Now listen to this number. They produce more than 800,000 tires and tubes daily. It's easy to see why Kenda is one of the top five largest bicycle tire manufacturers in the world. Now I am lucky to be supported by them and I helped design, develop, I was involved in the passion and the work that they put into developing the new range of bicycle tires that they have that people use and compete on the World Cup circuit. How's it guys? We are back. This is Moving the Needle Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Nettling. You're probably tired of my voice. And this will be episode two of what we feel like we're going to call World of MTB, or maybe Needles and Miles' World of MTB. If you tuned into the last one, we're going to try answer some questions. We're going to try make riding more fun for you, which is often when you want to go quicker, you need a little bit of help, or you're struggling with your setup, or you just are sports fans and mountain bike fans just like us and we're going to talk some crap about racing uh, what's going on in the world and we lean on you guys to send in those questions so make sure you direct message me uh, facebook whatever's easiest for you and i will try archive those questions and get to them but my co-host is a great friend of mine Miles Kelsey, you got to know him in the previous episode. He's helped me with the race review episodes. He has a wealth of knowledge in that head of his. He is a former downhill Masters World Champion, so he uh, can hold that over my head. I didn't ever get any stripes, Miles, so that's awesome. And uh, he grew up riding track, BMX, road. We still go riding on all sorts of bikes, now e-bikes. So, Miles, enough blabbering from me. Welcome back to the show and uh, our world of MTB. Needles, hello. Hello, listeners. Uh, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Mate, I just got caught up on the XC racing. Uh, I'm sure you probably watched it live. I watched the first one live from Brazil, um, which was incredible. So maybe the listeners might think we're just downhill fanatics or enduro or e-bike or dark fest, but... Man, I just love good racing, and uh, I did text uh, Nino. He was obviously very excited. I let I let the sort of craziness uh, kind of calm down, and I said, you know, Nino, that's just so awesome. You know, for you after three years coming back to win a race. But then he goes to the second one now, and Miles Pitcock. I mean, I don't know a hell of a lot about him, but I'm hearing rumblings that he's happy to comment that he might want to try downhill one day. Uh, I wouldn't put it past him. It seems like he can ride anything. <laughs> yeah, it's quite crazy. Yeah, that race is so exciting. Uh, women, I don't know what's more exciting, the women's event or the men's event. You know, for, for now, the women's event, is the, the field is so stacked and um, there's 10 to 15 riders who can win, you know, and different riders are, diff- are winning on different tracks. And But, yeah, um, this Nino, you like what? An incredible legend. We saw at the Cape Epic earlier this year, his form was good. But um, 
you know, to to be doing what he's doing back to back, even after. I mean, he had a bit of an easier epic. His partner wasn't up to, you know, on the wheel, and uh, his partner was battling with some illness and things. So maybe Nino had an easier epic, and maybe I don't know. Maybe that's the formula. That's one or one of the things that's counting in his uh, favor this year. But it's just such an exciting event. So yeah, kudos to Nino on Pitcock. Um, yeah, incredible rider, so young, won so many things already, um, and like it's quite incredible. It's it's um it's rare that you get these multi talents, guys that are talented across multiple disciplines. So, um, look, I don't think any of us grenadiers would be so happy if he moved to downhill, but um, yeah, you could put him in the gym and beef him up a bit so he can hold and withstand the hits and see what happens. He's certainly got the skill and incredibly talented uh athlete and rider yeah it's a newer generation just kind of riding everything um i haven't had the honor to chat to him or or do a lot of digging but it seems like that younger generation yeah he's flourishing on the road but he obviously rode as a kid or has that sort of skill set you know that they can ride everything and that cyclocross is no easy feat Uh, i've never been around a cyclocross race but i mean we all know riding a road bike with a bit bigger tire off-road is not going to be easy you're going to build some sort of skill set or like touch and feel for slippery terrain and sort of that unpredictableness of of that terrain but yeah it's so cool seeing and you're right like the depth is huge eh? same as downhill so we haven't spoken probably since lords and yeah. it's just a natural progression of sport. There's more depth in any sport that you try get into these days. So yeah, um, yeah the depth just makes it exciting for for us to get to see. Yeah, and quite. Um, I mean, he hasn't raced mountain bikes since Olympics, so it's quite a long time ago. And I figure, like, obviously he's done cyclocross which is a winter sport, and obviously he's performed in the spring classics on the road. And uh, he's just quite an incredible talent. I think cyclocross, I think as a youngster, if, you, if you're exposed to cyclocross, you learn how to suffer. You learn how to embrace the suffer. And it's also lap racing. So I think when you're young and you're doing lap racing, you want to impress your parents. So you're just going flat out. You know, it's not a, it's not a big loop where you disappear into the forest and you can ease up because you're sitting, say, seventh and no one's really watching you, so you can ease up a bit. I think cyclocross, you just actually have to you learn to sprint out of every turn. And I think that uh, if you do that from a very young age, you know you did cross-country racing when you were young. Great point, Miles. That's a great point. When you came into the finish start-finish area, for sure that energy of your parents maybe back in the day or now the fans – like when they're shouting, they give you that extra little bit of motivation. You're right. For cyclocross, it's like almost a smaller loop as far as I know. And in Belgium or in, in a lot of parts of Europe, I mean, those the fans are packed deep. You know, it's quite a mainstream sport over there, like those Wednesday night races or whatever they do. Uh, quite yeah. big paychecks as well for like <laughs> just a kind of local cyclocross race. Yeah, you do get the reps of just going hard and, and learning how to suffer and, I mean, that must yeah. breed confidence. You just dip back into the mountain bike scene to see what everyone's uh, fitness levels are like. <laughs> and then he wins. He's like, oh, okay, well, I can still mix it up. So that was that was pretty cool for me to see, yeah. 
Yeah, an incredibly exciting race. And just that like sprinting out of every turn, you even late in the race, you can see like second last lap and last lap, he's just out of the turn, he's just dropping watts, dropping watts, even though he's got a big gap. And uh, for me, that's what cyclocross racing does. It teaches you to just out of every turn, get up out of the saddle and just go, go, go. So yeah, it's obviously built an incredible pedigree there. And it will be interesting to see. I mean, he's still got <laughs> 10 years easy i mean and you could go into 15 more years where from what we're seeing now on like in the endurance space um you know riders in their mid-30s and closer to their 40s are really still able to perform so guy like pitcock you know um he must have all the brands in the world chasing him trying to sign him yeah no it'll be a good good place to be and 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 other exciting news is I guess it's a little bit spoken about, but Discovery did the press release that they were going to have the rights to the UCI downhill cross-country as far as I know. But it's more than that. It's not just a broadcast right. So just speaking of us talking about racing cross-country, downhill at Lords was, I mean, the, the sport's in a great spot. I mean, the atmosphere at Lords. I just sat in the finish area just taking it all in. Not like, oh, I wish I was still racing. Hey, that would be cool to have won a race in front of these crowds, I just stood back and I was like, just this atmosphere is crazy. The fans are crazy. They're going to need bodyguards at Leger for Worlds. Um, you know, it's it's growing, but it is very exciting because change is on the horizon. Maybe not much for next year because it's it's soon, to, but Discovery and whoever the team is involved is going to have the full rights to running the events in terms of venues, maybe amounts of venues per year, uh, scheduling, uh, who knows? Who knows what that looks like? And obviously the broadcast rights. So what a cool time to be involved in the sport, Miles. That, and, you know, you grew up before me and, and saw it evolve and then I've seen it evolve. Like it's becoming pretty damn mainstream uh, on certain levels. Yeah, I mean, if you look back at live World Cup broadcasts, uh, particularly downhill, um, go back to Freecaster days. Um, Freecaster was amazing at the time because we – you know, even in, here in South Africa, this is a long time ago, but the internet wasn't great. And um, you could get the audio. You couldn't always get all the visual, but you could at least get some other than UCI's live timing page, which was also questionable back then. But you could actually almost feel like you were at the event. And then um, Freecaster, obviously Red Bull picked up from Freecaster and just changed the game completely. So, okay. So, um, you know, like Freecaster did so much for the sport way back when. Um, and you know, brought it into everyone's house, into everyone's home. But then, um, you know, after a few years, Red Bull got involved, and they really upped the ante and really improved the broadcast. And so, you know, I'm, I'm personally, I'm super grateful to Red Bull for what they've done for the sport. It's, it's really made it a mainstream sport from a, a sort of a niche sport that not many people understood well at all. And um, so I think Discovery, it'd be really exciting to see just how much they invest into the space and what that does for for the sport itself. Does it make it, push it into, you know, the football space and make it really mainstream? And, um, you know, it's probably, hopefully it's also good for the athletes as well because, you know, the, the, the bigger the reach of these live broadcasts and the, 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 the more money that's behind them, the more exposure athletes can get for their, for their sponsors. So, um, it's an exciting space, and uh, I'm looking forward to see how it rolls out. 
Yeah, time will surely tell. And for some listeners that are maybe newish to the sport because of Red Bull, they did an incredible job. It's just, I guess maybe it's a natural progression, but it's almost full circle because when we were racing, you know, it was called the Grindic, Grindic World Cups, big sort of uh, t- uh, appliance company from Germany or something, big money in the sport on mainstream television, meaning obviously this is before streaming, so but it was in the households. It was probably like when you flick on to watch Tour de France, but you were flicking on going through your sports channels instead of watching, say, football, there was downhill. Um, and some of these riders doing that heyday had, you know, there was outside industry. Volvo was part of some teams. Uh, you know, this is during the Palmer, Sean Palmer uh, phase as well with Mountain Dew. These are big, like, American corporates. Uh, and a lot of these uh, companies, well, bike companies were backed by car companies. All sorts of people were playing in this space because of the eyeballs on television and and that you can sell. So it's going to be cool and it's sort of coming full circle, but then like with, is there going to be a streaming package? You know, what does that content look like? Is it pay to view? And that's going to piss some core people that have been watching on Red Bull. So yeah, I mean, there's way more questions and answers that we have at the time, but as you said, time will tell will be an exciting time. Do you know how long the uh, contract, like, is it a, a permanent thing? multi-year deal i mean it must be multi-year deal but i don't know what was in the press release i don't want to speak out of turn but it's multi-year you know it could be at seven or eight years with maybe a renewal so they've that also gives you time to maybe weather the storm because it doesn't matter what you do uh, there's a certain level that people expect or uh, look and feel and it might be different doesn't mean it's worse but you know there's there's going to be there's going to be haters as well but um, it seems like the people that I'm hearing grumblings that will be involved have very good wide sort of skill set, mountain bike history, racing, events planning, all sorts. So I would think they have the sport, you know, the best interest at heart. But but anyway, um, we often, often, episode two, but we've played with a little bit of like your favorite ride. And I've got more of a, a epiphany I had or trying to understand when I don't ride for a while. And then I heard uh, uh, Glenn Jacobs, who I met long ago that was for the UCI and, and has World Trail, um, mountain bike trail companies, built trails all over the world, and, and, and a great guy. I was listening to a podcast with him. And they kind of figured out why, back in the day before the sport was big, why they loved biking so much or riding. And then they figured out, to control a bike or to stay on it, especially at that time, you've got to be present and focused. Like, where's the front wheel? There's no time to think about stress, debt, financial issues, maybe even family issues. Because if you start hurtling down a hill at a decent pace or at whatever level, you know, pushing your limits, you can only be present. And isn't that some of what people are trying to achieve in this modern lifestyle is sort of be present and think about yeah. nothing else but that. So maybe that's the joy we sometimes get is the, and you've used it as like your meditation, is you don't necessarily meditate as the universe thinks you should, but that's your way of being present or unplugging. Yeah, I think like I've raced for many years, I think on my side, I've always um, enjoyed the training more than the racing, and I always immersed myself in the training. And I think it's because it was, there's a meditative state involved with training because to 
whether you're on the bike or whether it's, you know, so whether it's actual on the bike on the mountain uh, exposed to danger or whether it's in the gym or on the road bike or XE bike, whatever it is, getting the cardio in. I always absolutely enjoyed the training. And I like looking back, I think it's because of the, you know, the, 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 the Zen-like state or the pure focus that's required to, you know, execute everything properly. Um, and uh, I think it's what we people need more of in life, really. I mean, you know, um, I, I'm certainly not a – I'm a little bit more grumpy. When, let me just put it that way. I'm a little bit more grumpy when I haven't ridden my bike in a while, and, you know, that's the case right now because I've been ill twice this year. And it's quite frustrating. But um, and the reason why I get grumpy, and it's not just me. I hear so many people say this. You know, they haven't ridden their bike and they're grumpy and their wife is saying, just go and ride your bike kind of thing. And I think it's because of that, you know, you are forced to disconnect and you are forced to, you know, also when I ride, I, I try not to use too many, too much tech. I try actually not to use hot, well, I don't use heart rate monitors. I stopped using them like 10 years ago. I kind of know my body, but also um, there's no reason to use them and train with them anymore. But I try not to, I don't bother with power and anything like that. I, I like to look how many, how long I've been riding for. That's the only bit of data I like to look consume when I'm riding. But I try and use the moments to, you know, have the phone on silent and, if you do feel it vibrating, you just ignore it. You know, don't open up WhatsApp in the middle of the ride. Um, and yeah, it's an incredible sport, mountain biking and riding any kind of bike. It's incredible in that it helps. It's I know that it helps a lot of people just um, disconnect and and actually calm down <laughs> from this busy world that we all live in. So um, yeah, that's my take on it. Well, I mean, it's creating space sort of between an input and a reaction is what meditation can help for. And I'm no guru and definitely not preaching, just kind of letting out my thoughts as you've mentioned that. And and I think when you start enjoying the trail riding aspect, which is the downhills or downhill, which, which we do when people ask me to go for a ride, obviously the trails I pick, I would hope have a little bit more excitement on the downs. And now I'm trying to unpack, but why? So at any level, um, this can probably help. But if you're on a flat road or, yes, if you're suffering, you get pretty immersed. If you're going to suffer properly, it's pretty hard to think about something else, so an interval or something like that. But maybe the everyday rider is not doing that. But once you point it downhill, I mean, if you are not in sort of the present moment and flow sort of state to a certain level, you're not going to ride very well and you might cause an, an issue or have a crash. So I'm thinking that's the joy I get. I'm like, why? I don't ride for a week. Then I go ride with someone. I went yesterday. I went with Pitt. I said, are we going riding? He's like, well, why not? Good weather. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. But for me, I've been up that mountain thousands of times. So I could easily have said, oh, you're not that excited. I won't come. But we went, got cut short by a flat because he had a, a flat. But I got home way better than when I left for the ride. And I was like, there it is. The concept I heard explained to me makes so much sense now. It's sometimes you have to push yourself to go riding. Like you have to maybe go, I'm going to meditate three days a week and it's a habit I want to instill. We're lucky, you know, riding is still fun with the right people. And then you, you're surprised why you feel so good at the end of the week if you've been riding a bit. So I think we're quite lucky to have a sport that you do have to force yourself to immerse yourself in that, that sort of moment. And I'm sure there are lots of sports like that. 
if you play tennis pretty well, you're going to be just in the present moment. Yeah, I think it's kind of one of the hidden bonuses of bike riding. You know, um, mm. there's a lot of new people coming into the sport now, and a lot of them are coming to the sport because of you know health reasons or stress reasons or their you know social reasons. And um, whatever the reasons are, I think the the hidden bonus and thing that they discover is that actually it's so good for their for their for their health, for their mental health for their for their for their mood, and um, I, I think. Um, you know, not all. I don't think all sports offer that. I mean, I've never really been a big football guy or cricket guy or rugby or you know, not at all. I know you were quite talented. weren't you a talented hockey player when you were a youngster? I you played quite a lot of the mainstream sports, from cricket to hockey to tennis. And I'm trying to think back, but you see a lot of these sports. Well, see the sport done well, you need that fix, right? But they never sucked me in. And I'm thinking there is downtime between like pressure plays, right? So that would be the downtime between a downer run on the gondola back up. You can get back into your own head. You can think. You can go negative. You can go positive. You can speak to your friends. It's like an uphill climb. You can get in back into your own head on a negative way. But, you know, if you drop into a descent, I think that's where we actually experience the 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 positive and the joys of the riding at least us every someone gets it from the training from the endorphins from the physical that de- detaches him but um great hidden bonus no, that good... not many people realize is there but you know I, when i when i coach what? and actually uh, just like the the upside of being completely present and in the moment to execute properly and like not hurt yourself um, the yeah. upsides, the mental upsides are huge. And I think people are uh, starting to discover that now. So, you know, um, just to digress a little, this, the one thing with downhill that's always been around since way back when, uh, even freecaster days, was, you know, it's a madman sport. And these guys are just throwing, throwing themselves down the mountain, you know, pitch up at the top of the mountain and just jump on a bike and throw themselves down the mountain. And um, it's definitely, you know, the best riders in the world are super calm and everything's super calculated. And um, I think a lot of people are starting to realize that now. And, um, yeah, I think um, the positive mental impact of even extreme sports is, uh, is, is, is definitely tangible. That's a good point you bring up. I do think, I mean, I'm definitely a calculated rider and maybe calculated to the detriment of some of my results, but, Man, there's not a rider at the top of the hill that hasn't planned his run, knows what he's going to execute. Yes, you've got a pair on that rides at 110%, but he knows what line he wants, his practices. It's a very calculated sport. And and people often say to me, you're the madman that does downhill. I said, it's like anything. If you do it long enough, it's it becomes subconscious and easy. There's actually not a lot of fear on a, not a lot of racetracks. Now, put me on the sideline of... 2022 downhill racing i'm not looking to go back anytime soon because it's kind of looks scary but those guys are calculated they're doing it every day it's not as scary as what it feels from the outside i got a question for you for you um when you were racing was racing as a privateer more fun than it was when you were a professional with contracts on the line and performance bonuses and those kinds of things what so like your early years when you were trying to impress and trying to get onto teams, was that more more fun or was 
being a pro more fun. And I'm talking about like the enjoyment of being in the moment in the race run. I mean, it's a great question. And I think it's tough to isolate it because in the beginning, everything's exciting. So, you know, my first year over as a pro with there's no expectations and you haven't put any put much on yourself and no team has any expectations. You haven't done any results. So that was one of the most fun years I had, right? So that's an expectation. And then, yes, it starts getting worse and worse. Proving myself was still fun. Getting those results was fun. The bad results didn't matter so much because I had a goal. Once you start achieving a certain level, contracts, I think, yes, that can be the undoing so that your expectations rise. And if you allow the expectations from the team, which there's not often, maybe there's some subtle ones that you can feel, but mostly it comes from your own expectations. But then, yes, the bad races for me, as the years went on, became a little harder to handle. Um, and, and I had achieved success. So I just wanted that success. So nothing was really good enough below, you know, getting the podium or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, for me, practice was always fun. And then building the race, like you said, you know, going out and training and practice. As a kid, I just remember practice was the best. Race was like a bonus byproduct. Um, so yeah, I guess I've answered a little bit, but yeah, as time and then, goes and then, on. Uh, and then another question on your racing years. Um, did you ever feel, um, you know, on the bike, you drop in its race run? Did you did you ever feel like, like when you had a good race, regardless of the results, when you performed well? Let's talk about that. So on those races that you performed well, did you ever feel that you weren't actually so much as thinking consciously about everything that you were doing you were more feeling the trail and feeling the bike and 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 instinct was taking over as opposed to like okay shift down now pump hard here go light compress you know all that kind of stuff did you ever actually have races where you got to the bottom and you're like wow i didn't really actually have to think about anything it was like a computer that was just running i just kind of felt that I knew what to do and didn't overthink it. Yeah, I think the races that you did overthink is when there were issues or crashes or you um, saved the run near the end. And that's sometimes subconscious. And I'll get to that point. So sometimes your subconscious, after a very good three quarters of a run, sometimes if you let the subconscious control it, or maybe conscious, I've had a good run. Don't fuck this up. And that's when you often ride tight the last quarter, right? You mail it in instead of going, but my goal is to go fastest from A to B. And if you can attack all the way to finish, you're going to have a better run and probably stay on your bike. But yeah, I think downhill racing and, and a lot of sports, you even at the top level, there's conscious thought, there's planning, there's preparation. There's You know everything you're going to do in that race run to have your perfect run, for lack of a better term. So in the race run, for sure not. There's no thought of I need to shift down to here. It, it hopefully becomes subconscious. And me, myself, the way I raced well was, you know, I had to be in a good mood at the top, uh, relaxed, otherwise I'd get too tense. And I would sort of focus on the first few turns in my mind and getting through those. And then the rest I felt would take care of itself. And I was just, you know, depending on the track, smooth attacking was a, was a mindset I had. I wanted to be smooth because I rode well when I was smooth, but I wanted to attack that meant to the finish. So if I crashed in a race run, but I was sort of subconscious and I know I was attacking, I was 
happy with that. Yes, you bummed you didn't get a result, but at least I know I didn't uh, get on the brakes in the last quarter and get eighth instead of attacking to the finish. So, um, and then at Darkfest, I was thinking about this. Like, playing, you're dying over, dying over there. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You said you were ill. <laughs> That's fine. So I play another sport, and it comes up a bit on the the, the podcast, uh, the Angry Sticks Golf, and that sport is uh, for me one of the hardest to be subconscious. But you know, maybe my skill level's not quite there yet. But at Darkfest, <laughs> I made sure I. I did the homework. Okay, so how fast into the step up? Okay, no breaks this year again. Cool. You didn't see me faff around watching and being on the top of that step up because I knew I'd done in the years before. And if I overthink it, it's probably going to be worse. So I just dropped in. Subconscious, luckily for me, I've done it enough. Hopefully can take over. Um, did you follow someone so in for the first one? The step up, I think not. I sort of watched and I go off my previous attempts and then i think i followed into the the rocket launches at at the bottom and sometimes following some people might think that's quite a lot going on and and watching someone and having to figure out your own but often you can your body reacts to the guy in front of you to him popping so then your body kind of does that yeah it's a so it's not often i got a question on those jumps while we're there sorry man um did you you know like when you go to a jump track and you is like a, a warm-up line and then like a main line and you do the warm-up line a little bit and then you start hitting the main line. But before you go to the main line, you kind of like roll up the takeoff of the jumps a few times and sort of like, like jump off the side of them, do some bail bailouts bail kind of thing. Can you do that at the dark fest? Like, I mean, I was there on the final day, the open day, and I watched until the wind took over. But um, like, can you, those things are so huge. And I think you, I don't know, what are you doing? 70, 80 Ks an hour rolling into them. Can you, is there like a bailout point where you can ride up the takeoff and bailouts just to feel what the takeoff is going to do to you? A little bit, but on the size of those jumps and like, again, I'm not the most experienced rider out there at those jumps, but for me, the bailout is so far back to stop on the lip that you don't really get a gauge of what the lip feels like at speed. So it is, you, you spotted it there. It is quite all or nothing commitment because the lip's so long that if you want to bail out near the top, you're going sort of too fast. So you just land like hugely in the middle. And then if you want to just be able to stop by the top, you're going to start breaking sort of on the flat already. So then you're not really getting a good gauge. So you, you do uh, some run-ins behind people to gauge the speed sort of just before the start of the lip. Then you can break, go out, do a lot of watching. Um, and then you've got to feel comfortable. You've got to feel good. Look, you're going to have butterflies. Like those are some of the only jumps where even though I'd done them multiple times and years before, that each time I dropped into the, especially the rocket launches, the two big ones at the bottom, <laughs> each time I had this weird feeling, I was like, I'm uh, Kind of hope this one goes well, but, but even though I know it's kind of going to, it should go well, I've done it 10 times, but they're that big and that intimidating that even after being comfortable, I'm already like, huh, <laughs> I hope this one goes well or I hope I don't mess this one up. But um, no, that like is leading, a tough one to, to sort of the lead in. Leading into the event, did you like, uh, did you spend a couple of weeks on your jump bike or were you just riding a trail bike or did you actually spend time jumping the big beast so my plan was to but then i had to obviously went to lords and there was 
not the timing didn't work out. I um, got super lucky and had to build up a new bike. And then I had plans to spend more time on the downhill bike because uh, I've been on the trail bike. <laughs> and uh, classic few days before the vents rolling in and I went through to check on the building, but they weren't riding. Then the weather hit and it felt like the Saturday before was the first time I rode the downhill bike, but they had a warm-up line. So I uh, I said hi to everyone and I actually snuck off on my own because at any level, you've got to be comfortable. You've got to get a touch and feel for your bike. Maybe that's a good segue to helping with the listener questions. And that's, uh, you, you know, ride within your limits. And if you haven't ridden for a while, then just realize that your touch and feel on the bike's going to not be as good. And it's the same as a pro level. Um, you've got to you've got to ride that bike, ride a slower trail or a less techy one, get your touch and feel back. And then when you feel, okay, I know what I'm doing, it's coming a bit more subconscious, then you can push on to sort of bigger obstacles or things like that. Yeah, I think that's great advice for people, for 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 listeners is um, Andrew Nettling's got 10,000 hours of doing this thing. So even if he dusts off his downhill bike like a couple of days before Darkfest and then starts rolling into this stuff, he still did a bit of a warm-up beforehand, but he's got 10,000 hours and those 10,000 hours, that proprioception is there. He's just got to polish it up and then it's back and fresh again. But um, if you have been off, um, and haven't been riding for a bit, then definitely I completely agree. Like you've got to just start from scratch and um, go for a ride on your own. You know, don't uh, if you, if you haven't been riding for a week or two weeks and you get back on the bike, don't jump in onto a wheel and try and follow your mates at the pace you were. You left you left the at the pace you last rode. You know, go for a ride on your own and just start feeling the mountain again and get that. Uh, proprioception polished up again because i think yeah that's my experience that's kind of where we're most vulnerable where we're like oh you know four months four weeks ago i hit this thing and i nailed it so i'm just going to drop back in and just go flat out again but you know if you've only been riding for two three years it doesn't matter the size of the drop off or it doesn't matter the size of the double like just just roll it just get just take your time getting into it um that's, when I coach, that's definitely, when I do skills coaching, that's definitely one of the things I repeat quite often. It's just ease, your, ease into it. Your, you need to build that proprioception back. That's, yeah, that's a killer segue into some of the questions. And I spoke to C-Dog, Clemens Cardelli. He's one of the, the best free riders in the world, in my mind. I think he's actually very underrated, very humble. Um, so that podcast dropped before this one. And he, we spoke about that. We spoke about it, and he said this year was the best year that he's managed the week, meaning he didn't ride every session, and he didn't throw his biggest tricks until he was comfortable. He had a few in mind, and it took him till sort of Wednesday. And we started riding Sunday-ish, they maybe a little bit before. It took him till Wednesday to feel right in his own body plus weather conditions, right? And this is a guy that rides – you know, most days a week, or he's in touch with his body and his riding. So that's a great way to how many guys have families, how many guys are new to the sport, how many guys are getting back and, and they all want to have fun and they all want to progress. Right. So, um, to help them is to realize every day your body might feel a bit different. And if you can't ride, you only ride once a week, that's decent. But imagine you take two, three weeks off, maybe don't go back to the same speed 
or obstacles if you're not feeling good on the bike. And that might take you 10 minutes of riding on your own, like you said, or it might take you the whole ride to feel comfortable again. And I call it the touch on a bike, your touch and feel. How subconscious are you? You know, do, do, Does your bike feel like someone else's bike? Because sometimes for me, if I take a week or two off and I get back, it doesn't feel like my bike. It feels like something else and then something clicks. You'll feel it. The more you ride, you'll feel, ah, it's clicked again. Um, so that's a great bit of advice, Miles, is maybe, hey, guys, we all want to do well. We do a bit of coaching for riders. And when last did you ride? Oh, a month ago because you've been on a work trip. It's not just your fitness that goes. It's your touch and feel. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually kind of difficult to help people with their skills if they haven't ridden for three, four weeks, you know, taking a long period off, and then they jump their first session. Their first ride back is a session, is a skill session, because they – there's a lot of rust there and the rust is uh, muting some of the skill that they do have. Yeah. And your body will go back to me learning another sport. Your body will go back to your default, what's comfortable to you. And unfortunately, if that comfortable technique is wrong or uh, from inexperience, which is totally fine. I mean, we all make mistakes um, and we all have bad habits. So maybe that's a, a key is, you know, if you take a lesson, but then you go on a work trip or you, your bike breaks or you get injured, you might need to go and practice the skill set that, say, a Miles or a coach has given you or something that you learned on the trail. Maybe make a few notes. Oh, he said I must drop my heels a bit more. And then next time you get to the session and then you're not doing that, you haven't made it sort of a habit or a subconscious, I think. Yeah, that's a key point as well, Miles, is, is remember what you learn in a skills thing or what you see on tv or youtube we all know people are going to go to youtube and you might try a few different things it takes a while to make it uh, subconscious and a habit yeah and even once it does become subconscious and a habit you kind of still need to work at it i mean i i, I reckon the top i reckon the top riders xc well i know the xc guys do it but i reckon also the likes of Greg and that have like just dedicated skills days where they go out and, you know, maybe they're playing on the bike and just riding to have fun. But that's a skill session in disguise, really. You know, just like let's go do 10 quick laps on his local, on, on a track that he likes. That's actually a skill session, really. So everyone needs to do skill sessions. Yeah, and I mean, it's going to make riding more fun and safe. So let's jump into some episode two here with some listener questions. We've just been speaking about some of this, and our first one is how to get faster and more confident with speed down tight trails, um, and it's repetition. My quick answer will be repetition and building up confidence, meaning you don't need to go quick, rather get the technique down first, and then you add the speed later, because once you've got the technique, you can take it to any style of trail. So this guy can maybe be more aware of his technique on more flowy open trails, body position. So then tighter trails, you're going to bring the speed back. I think rather scrub more speed going into the very first turn. If it's tight trails, if you mess up the first one, the second one's going to be worse and the third from then. So don't be too aggressive into the first corner, uh, first obstacle on tight trails. Because we've all been there, rushing into a set of tight trails, uh, overdoing the first one, trying to get around the second one and clipping a tree, and next time I'm in the bush. So 100% maybe that's something. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think you've just got to roll in slowly. And also, you if there's something that's really tricky on the trail, you know, stop and have a look at it and work out what you want to do there. Push back up and try it again. Or, or have, if you want to run laps of this type trail, then have a real slow sighting lap and then start to build your speed on the second and third lap. You know, just try, just try and find find a flow. And I often look for like what, what I call red flags. So like what are the things you definitely don't want to hit? You know, work mm, out I where like that. those... Yes, I was about to say that. Yeah, and work out like where, where, what you need to do so that you don't end up running a low line or running a line that feeds you into the red flag thing, you know, whether it's a sniper or whatever, whatever it is. So I always say look for those things, you know, those things that are going to break a wheel or break part of your body. Work out a, a line that you're going to do around those and then, and then start to just flow around it before you even think of speed. Just start to flow around those things. Um, yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more with you. Oh, that's a brilliant one. I was also thinking there's, there might be a standout turn that's tighter than all the others and that's where you're going to have to really scrub speed. And he wants more speed and confidence. Well, and, and I think another key thing is the flow. There is a certain speed that works on every trail. Flow trail, obviously faster. The tighter it is, the slower your overall speed will be. But there might be some nice sections, except for one or two of these snipers Miles just spoke about. So isolate those. Okay, so this tree jumps up at me compared to the overall flow of this 200-meter section, 300-foot section, or a rock. Okay, so that's a no-go zone. If I am too fast, I'm going to hit the rock, I'm going to crash, or I'm going to hit this tree, um, and then build your flow around that for the rest of it. So I think that's great, great advice. And we would like to hear back. If we didn't help, tell us. We'd like to really give you some of our experience that we've been lucky enough to have in the sport. Let's move on. Can different riders develop different advantages in specific Areas depending on where they ride, and in brackets, flow jump tech uh, by Tylen. If I've um, good question said the name correctly, and the previous one was Tyler's MTB off Insta. So thanks for that, Miles. You want to jump in on that one first? Uh, I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, and just having been a student of downhill racing and cross country racing for years, just watched what's you know my own riding, people I'm racing with, but then also at the world level watching those guys. I think definitely yes. You know, you get some guys just grow up in an area where there's a lot more techie rock, and then you go to a racetrack where there's techie rock, and no surprising they're fast. Or you know, guys grow up riding bigger jumps, and you know. Put any jumps onto a track and then these guys are super confident and having fun and guess what they're fast so i think most definitely yes um but it doesn't mean that they uh that if you only have a certain type of terrain in the area you ride that you're not going to be able to ride other stuff you know it just means you have to find those things and work on those things so um yeah i think naturally like the the brits are always better in wet, rooty, sloppy stuff and also in super dry, dusty powder because you kind of ride those two situations the same way. Um, and then, you know, maybe like yourself and Minna are re we're always really good on, you know, tracks where there are a lot of jumps because you guys are just incredible at flowing and, and making speed out of all the little downslopes. Um, as, you know, I'm just picking out one of your strengths. But I think 
I think definitely the, the terrain you're exposed to most regularly is the terrain that you'll master first. What, what do you think, Needles? I think exactly that. It's a byproduct of what you ride the most. And when you ride something well and, and a lot, you, you gain confidence. And then you obviously take that skill set to other areas. But it's the same as when Brendon comes, Brendon comes to South Africa and he's used to loam and there's sort of actually more grip than in our dry summer conditions. And I say, you're not giving it a chance. You know, I don't feel that bad on the trails grip-wise because I'm so used to it. So that's me, uh, dry stuff. Um, and the best riders in the world will adapt to different uh, terrains and things like, and they'll work on these weaknesses. So it's a great question, and, and we say yes. In short, of course, uh, depends on where you come from. You might develop uh, a certain big skill set or advantage, and you'll be really good at that. And from there, you can build to other ones. So if the question is to understand if he struggles on a certain set of trails because he's not used to it, you've got to get more reps. You've got to, you know, back to basics. You've got to start from scratch, ride slower, figure out the technique, you know. Completely, just as a sidebar on this question, do you remember Minar's first season overseas and in Europe? I think, I don't know, what was Greg? Seven at the time. Or maybe eight. Oh, well, when he in, <laughs> no, in Europe, he like, when he hated it. Yeah, his first season. So what was he like, sixteen or something? And he, he he spent most of his first season in France riding the, the French races, and it was always rainy in those days. And uh, he came back and said he can't ride in the wet, and so he needs to learn if he wants to do this properly. He needs to learn to ride in the wet. So, you know, in Peter Maritzburg, um, in the months of December, November, December, Jan, Feb, it rains. And uh, at that time, most mountain bikers didn't actually go up into the mountains because it was just like trying to pedal in peanut butter. It was just ridiculous. And if there was any kind of gradient, it was just impossible to ride. And I remember Greg's dad telling me, no, Greg's, Greg's been riding right through, right through summer. And I'm like, what? Where, where, is he? where is he that he's riding? And Jeff was like, no, no, he's decided he needs to learn to ride the slickest of slickest conditions because that's what Europe is about. And so he's spending the whole of summer on his bike, hiking in the woods, finding the most treacherous stuff and just exposing himself to to what he needs to learn to master. Now, I'll never forget that. No, me either. And he's become one of the best wet riders uh, of our previous generation current generation and maybe future because his lifespan in the sport is so broad no but it's exactly that um i took to mud riding well but it was probably my attitude and i was rode a little bit in winter in the cape we had a little bit more rainy season um versus greg their rainy season came in summer and you're right it was so slick there it was almost unrideable but he forced himself to get used to it so Great question there. And yes, you will have certain advantages coming from certain areas because you'll be comfortable. Like Danny Hart, um, he is very comfortable. Uh, Reese Wilson, very comfortable in the mud. He rides that all off-season. So he doesn't. he's not worried about the temperature, the amount of rain kit he needs. He either goes out and has fun or he doesn't ride his bike. So you do see it on the World Cup circuit as well. And then if they become great superstars of the sport, they round that skill set and get good in their weakness. Maybe that's the dry or et cetera like that. And let's move on. How hard is it for South Africans to race in America 
slash Europe, given the cost and challenges with visas and sponsorship? Well, be it South Africa, be it from anywhere with an economy that struggles, uh, or you have to get on a plane ride. Sometimes for the Aussies, it's the same thing. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to get the experience that some of the Europeans are getting at a young age, especially now. So the challenges are visas. Um, that's more a paperwork cost thing. Um, flights, getting over there, it's very expensive. It's costly. Uh, but that's often why you see some of these riders do make it because it's uh, make or break. If you spend the money to get over there or your parents do, you're going to make the most of it. And you're going to put in the effort. So um, Jared Graves spoke about that. All those young Aussies that came over and slept on couches, uh, me, myself, with them. I mean, two-minute noodles <laughs> with a bit of tuna was a luxury meal. Um, I didn't order a soda from McDonald's for the first three or four years. It was a water cup, and I snuck lemonade in it. So come and get me if you need me, McDonald's or KFC. And I don't promote eating that shit food, but it was almost all I could afford. Yeah. So um, it's very difficult. People, I know you've done podcasts and mentioned this before and some of the stuff, but I think a lot of people don't realize how tough pro riders have in the beginning when they're, you know, let's call them neo-pros, you know, trying to make, trying to get that ride. And the first few years are on their own, on their own dime. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, they just kind of want the pro deal immediately. You know, like I've, I won my national championship in country Y and now I'm ready for world cups and I need a pro deal to make it work. And like, yeah, I think it's, um, it's it's you can't expect you can't have any expectations in this sport and you can't expect a pro deal right from the get-go it certainly makes things easier especially coming from uh, developing economies but yeah i kind of uh i take my hat off to to guys anyone outside of europe or outside of big mountain area that has um you know even qualified for a downhill world cup because just uh, it's it's a it's very expensive to expose yourself to the kind of gradients and things that you'll that you'll find out there. Just got an email from the Hangar Bike Code. Do you know that? Do you know that shop? Yeah, yeah, it's a <laughs> very credible shop that's just emailed you. Um, there's um, a certain bearded brother that runs it. <laughs> that's a shameless plug to the bike shop that I. Um, for my sins have opened with my brother and another partner. So Miles, thanks for that. No this problem. episode brought to you by the Hangar Bike Co. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Please hit us up when you're in the Stellenbosch Somerset West region, uh, hopefully in our summer. That'll be good weather for you Europeans. Actually, uh, John T is one of the best uh, mechanics in the country, I believe. That Those years working on the World Cup circuits, like – if you need a brake bleed, um, Jonty's my guy for a brake bleed. Fortunately, these days, I don't actually work too much on my suspension, but um, he's also the guy for suspension, in, in my opinion. And generally, all things on the bike. So there we go. I just gave your bike shop the 60-second plug. Nice. <laughs> I'll, I'll send the 50 rand uh, commission fee for that. <laughs> I'll take it. But you know what? On that question about getting overseas and is it difficult, the one thing I thought about that I do want to mention before we move on is – um, a few years ago, I not a few years ago, maybe ten years ago, I looked at the World Cup tracks, and I just felt so sorry for any South Africans or any 
any rider from a developing country where there aren't big mountains, I felt so sorry for them trying to become a professional rider because the, the, the gap is just so huge from what you're riding at. Technically, the terrain is so, is so, so different to over in Europe as opposed to in most people's, you know, most countries, most developing countries, most flat countries. But <clears throat> e-bikes, in my opinion, are a bit of a leveler in this regard because if you even if you live in a town where there's only one mountain with an e-bike it's it's easy to do regular laps and expose yourself to um a what a heavy bike feels like when you're descending and to multiple multiple you can expose yourself to a lot more time in the gravity position in the downhill position by using an e-bike so i think e-bikes are a great leveler and are although they are expensive um uh, they are helping riders assimilate and move into Europe a little, a little more these days. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I didn't write down where the uh, question came from, but he did mention sponsorship. So if it is someone trying to make it or get sponsorship, I, I, I think I'll end with the, there's a, where there's a will, there's a way. E-bikes are expensive. But I do know that I had a lot of help from my parents. Don't get me wrong. But I also, it's not about me, but maybe it's a story to give some inspiration. I did odd jobs when I was over there. I grouted tiles. Uh, you know, I didn't make a hell of a lot, but it helped me get to the next race. Um, and when I was home, I begged, borrowed, and bartered to have a coach. Scott Sharp was at the time a legend of the sport from Australia. I couldn't afford to pay him. I was honest with that. I said, I need help. I want to, if I want to get to the next level, I've got to train like those guys. And uh, we, you know, we did a product swap. I got, I had sp some sponsors at the time, so I was lucky and I did a product sponsor. I thanked him that way. And thanks again. I'm pretty sure he's not listening to this. He'll be a great guy to get on the podcast actually. Um, so I think where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, if the question is coming from someone with a dream, uh, be realistic. But if you put your heart and soul into it, at least you know you tried. Um, get a coach there are ways to get one cheaply and uh, go from there if it's someone just trying to understand the nuts and bolts of actually making it it's bloody well tough and it's getting harder and harder with the europeans that often get on these pro teams as juniors but we'll just leave it at there otherwise i'll go into the weeds with that thought process uh, how to develop confidence for riding steep terrain? What mindset techniques have you used? And is keeping it fun a key ingredient? I love riding it, but sometimes I hit a mental block. Is practice a key? Thanks for the great podcast. It's always a pleasure to listen to. Well, thank you for the feedback. I think we've touched on quite a few things there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it is repetition, but the correct technique would help so he's asking about steep terrain a little different to tight terrain again start slow get comfortable but the technique would be drop those heels maybe there are some things that me and miles can help and then just giving you the mental practice more it'll get better you know drop your heels um is your bar height high enough if you're consistently riding steep terrain so even pro downhillers Someone like Greg plays with his setup a bit. So the steeper the course is, the higher he'll make his bars. So that gets his body position a little bit further back. If the track's flat, that means he doesn't have enough weight on the front wheel, not to get too technical. But if the track is very steep, you want your body weight further back, 
focusing on dropping your heels will push your hips back. It'll get you a little bit further back. Uh, so that's a key ingredient. Obviously, you're going to have the thing. And then um, slow is your friend. Once you have too much speed on a steep terrain, that's when shit hits the fan. So I'd like you to start very slow. Like, can you creep down the section and have so much brake control that you're creeping but not skidding? Can you do that? What does that feel like? How hard are you on the brakes? How much do you use your front brake versus your rear brake? So get control of your braking, your braking points, and drop those heels. From there, you can then experiment. Go, okay, well, I can go a little bit quicker there. I can brake later into the turn there. But breaking before the obstacle, breaking before the steep turn is your is your friend. Love it. Completely agree with you. Um, two things I want to add, though, if I may. Um, Please. I think, yeah, so bike setup, like, uh, also you could roll those brake levers up a little bit. A lot of, a lot of uh, trail riders, well, not a lot, but when I coach, I find a lot of riders are running their, their levers too vert. You know, if you roll those levers up a little bit, it helps you... Sh- move your weight around a bit on the bike and you can still feel confident that you can reach the brake lever so that's the one thing um also make sure your rebound on your fork isn't super slow because if you're going down something steep and your fork is a soft and also b slow it's just a recipe for disaster because the thing's packing down and making everything feel steeper than what it really is um i said a couple things to add oh the other thing is um also, what you can do before you roll in is just stand on the side of the mountain for a little bit and just look around and start just just expose yourself to the gradient for a couple of minutes, you know, like five minutes ought to do it. But just even sit around on the mountain and just get used to the feel of the gradient around you, you know. If it's, if it's that steep and it's really freaking you out, like just um, – like we did in Endora a couple of years ago, a few of us went over to race and we actually just sat around on those steep slopes down at the bottom just to actually get your head around the fact that it's not impossible. You know, they weren't, but the track was closed and we, but we just sat there just to kind of get used to the gradient. So that's, that's something that I recommend, but I just want to say, do you know how funny it is? Um, I don't suggest and recommend watching fail videos at all. In fact, they irritate me because I believe it actually implants something in your mind and then you start seeing crashes when you're riding. But what you can learn from maybe from save videos, um, I endorse save videos and I recommend watching save, save videos. But usually on a steep section of trail, if someone, the moment someone uncleats and dabs, you'll see a good rider will get the dab done with and put his foot back on, put his or her foot back on the pedal straight away um, because that keeps the sense of gravity low. But maybe an inexperienced rider does a dab and then feels a little bit more secure, wrongly so, feels secure with a foot on the ground. And when that one foot's on the ground or not on the pedal, there's a lot more weight on the bars. So now the front of the bike is a lot more heavy. So you usually see that if someone dabs and doesn't put their foot back on the pedal quick enough, it often ends in a crash on steep trails. So look, watch, like you can see Greg does that. Greg will uncleats. It doesn't happen often, but you'll see if Greg unclips like on a steep section of trail, he puts his foot back on the pedal straight away. Even if he doesn't get it cleated in, he's like, it's got to get back on the pedal. And that stabilizes you. So just something to remember on steep stuff. 
Yeah, that's brilliant addition. And, and the reason he puts it back on, yes, is to stabilize and get back on the braking. So, but he mentioned one or two things that uh, confidence, the word confidence and mental block. So maybe he's having an issue with it, even though he loves riding, enjoys steep terrain. So potentially a mental block can come from having a crash or struggling with a certain type of terrain. And, and that sometimes comes from the incorrect technique. So if we fix a technique and we build up slowly, you will then get down one or two of these steep trails and then you'll get down a little bit. And the more you get down, maybe the more fun you're having because you're not too scared. And then your mental block will disappear over time and you'll get confidence. I always heard a saying in it and, and confidence comes from demonstrated practice. And I couldn't agree more because sometimes you lose confidence because you've crashed and now all you can think about is crashing again. Then you go down and you crash again. Now you've crashed twice in the last five rides. Of course your confidence is going to be hurt. How do you get it back? Start slow, start with a less steep terrain and then build up slowly. Um, the pros do it. Everyone does it. Like Miles said, when a pro comes back from a ride off or some injury, he has to work back slowly in steps. So I'll just add that to help maybe with your confidence. And you mentioned mental block. So I can read between the lines, potentially he's had some of those issues in the past. And I think we've given hopefully some good things to focus on. Then moving on, potentially similar question. It's quite long-winded, so I'm just going to sort of get through it and get the nuts and bolts of it. But I appreciate taking the time, everyone that sent a question. Regarding risk management, I had to make my own learnings. With becoming a better rider, the con consequence of a line became more severe, which I experienced and broke several bones in his back, collarbone, ribs. Okay, we've all been there. Luckily, I walk away, no long-term restrictions. Shame. So he's maybe got overconfidence or he's become a great rider and thus going to gnarly terrain. So he developed the process. First, I need to understand my na nature habit. Sometimes you just have a feeling that you can commit, sometimes not. What are your thoughts? So let's park that one. So commit, not co commit. Thought, trying to understand my gut feeling. So similar question. Why is it a yes? Why is it a no? Impulse, your brain says an impulse to your body and then there's a body reaction. So this is getting deep. And, and exciting, hopefully, that we can help. Cool. This is a great one. Um, and he goes on. You want to send a road gap. You have a strange feeling. Your brain's telling you to run away. Stop riding. Check the gap. So I understand where he's going. I spoke to pros about this. So let's, let's go back to his questions. So I need to understand. What are your thoughts? Sometimes you have a feeling that you can commit. Other times, not. It's a very tough one, and it is very individual-based. The, it's natural for our brains, I think, to seek out the negative in a situation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have it's a, a natural instinct. evolution. It's a yeah. survival instinct. So the bigger the jump, the more the brain's probably going to say, "If this goes wrong, it could end in tears. It could end badly." And that's a, a byproduct of mountain biking. The same is happening at Darkfest. I've got to process those things. Is it worth the risk? Um, so he's having these thoughts. So he's maybe a little bit more thoughtful rider, which is great. He's had a big injury. And I think not to harp on, start small again. Let's build some confidence and get an understanding of your gut feeling and when it's right or wrong. So he's had a big crash. It's, it's, he's had a big one. He's you know broken bones in his back. He says he's going to be okay. I mean, that's a big crash. 
um, we're glad he's doing well. So for me, that gut feeling is going to come up even more now. The body and mind are protecting him from what happened in the past. But if we can get to the present and get him sort of confident on on smaller obstacles and get his process maybe more aligned to his skill level again. And that's where I'll start with that on the gut. Yeah, I think uh, – so you want me to expand on the gut feel? I think the gut feel – I think a lot of these things kind of overlap and I think just like uh, slow down, get off the bike, walk, look at it, analyze it and then try and understand what technique is required for for that obstacle and uh, try and seek out a coach or try and seek out, I feel like I'm plugging myself here, I'm not, I'm just saying try and seek out a coach who helps you quieten the noise there's a you know a lot of people watch too many skills edits and it's very difficult to make a good skills edit on youtube but to you know articulate it in a way that people resonate with it but try and find a coach or a channel or someone who can help you just focus on the two or three things you need to do to nail the 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 step down the gap jump what the road gap whatever it is because uh if you try and roll into it thinking of you know, the 10 things on the checklist, you're kind of like missing the point. You're kind of like, it, it's, it's, it's confusing. It's, it's too much data to process. So try and, find a, try and find someone who can point you in the direction of a technique, which is only like two, three things to think about, and that's it. Like, you know, Brendog always sent it in one video. What was it, Brendog? Pedal hard and pull up. Like, how do you, there was that, I don't know, that thing on the internet a while back, like the big, big jump. How do you get over it? Well, you pedal hard and you pull up. And that's like absolutely perfect because, yes, there are a whole lot of other little nuances that are happening around you and like little things, but the essence of it is is pedal hard and pull up. But, um, yeah, so try and your gut feel and your confidence comes from actually having a technique in your head that is clear to you on what you need to do to get through this thing. And this to, to overcoming the... Overco- the fear is, oh, let me put it this way, the fear is overcome when you have a plan. Like, this is what I know works because this is what I heard needles say. And uh, it's worked for me on smaller stuff. And so, you know, there's other nuances here, but I'm going to stick to that plan of A, B, C, boom, kind of thing. So I think- yeah, I mean, this this guy's great because, he, he look, he's, he's written quite a lot here and he's got questions for us as well as like some observations for himself. So he'll say, I'll stop riding, I'll check the gap, like Miles said. I'll try to break down the move. So if it's a new gap, is there any similarities to another gap in your mind that you've done safely? I think those are really good things. Okay, so the drop is six foot, but I've done that four foot one. We're on that other trail. Okay, cool. So I've done a four-foot one. What's a bit different? Okay, the speed's me different. Then I can channel my past positive experience. So you've got a bit of confidence. But he says, if my thoughts can't convince my feelings, then I give it a try. Otherwise, it's not the day. I think this is great. Literally, some of the best riders in the world, the more experience they get, the more they understand. You know what? It's not my day. Is my ego hurt? Great, a little bit. Do I need to prove myself? No. I don't. So I think everyone else can get to the point where they're okay with walking away because this is when uh, crashes happen more often is complacency, is is not understanding the gut, having a thought process and a plan and 
Sea Dog had the same thing at Royal Hills. So it's another free ride event. He said he barely looked at the shark fin. He literally just followed someone in and he literally had the one of the biggest crashes he's ever had and he could have avoided it by stopping and doing it at a time when he processed what the jump was really like and what the speed was going to feel like. So even the best in the world have days when they misjudge it. Um, so I appreciate this guy because I'm sure a lot of guys go through the same thing. I can't understand my gut feeling or my brain's telling me no. Look, sometimes you've got to listen to that. And you've got to understand if you've done something similar before and if it's worth the risk. What's, you know, if you can play a little worst case scenario, depending on the obstacle, are you, are you willing to take it for that day or is it for another day? And shame, I just read uh, Bear Claw, Darren Bearcloth, one of the great legends of freeride. He's had an issue by not checking the trail. And, and he mentioned this is a lesson. The jump seems to have been a little bit different to the last time I rode it. So with with experience comes confidence, and with confidence, I think sometimes comes complacency. So even the best riders in the world get a little bit complacent. So um, I'm glad you're right. I'm I'm thankful you sent that in. I hope we helped you. It was a long-winded question, and we gave a long-winded answer. But if there's a follow-up, hit us up. Then I think an awesome way to wind down, um, and uh, it was a, a gentleman that gave gave some cool feedback on the podcast and to Miles as well. How to shrulp. If you can <laughs> teach me that by podcast, I would be amazed. If at 52 <laughs> I can learn that, I would truly be amazed. <laughs> Get your foot pump out. <laughs> I think at any age, and uh, Miles, you can sort of speak to this, you can shrulp at your level. So can you hear me? Okay, sorry, we just had a little mic check. So this gentleman's awesome. We shared some back and forth. I remember these messages. And I said, well, well, you got any questions? And he's like, not really. I'm just enjoying the podcast. But if you can help me, Shrop. Well, what does Shrop mean to him? What does Shrop mean to me? Everyone has their own level of Shrop. You know, just kicking up some dust in a turn, is that a Shrop to you? Or do you have to look like Reese Wilson Shropping a jump at Fort William? Like... You've got to be aware of your experience, talent level, and your expectations. But yes, I think you can still shrub, and that comes from maybe riding one trail over and over and getting kind of overconfident. I know we spoke about beware of that, but pick a trail that is limited uh, areas for disaster, and you can shrub that trail. And Brendog said the same thing. How do you get quicker, fast? Pick one trail. Get good on one style of trail or one little section in your woods and your body will start figuring out how to go faster what to do subconsciously a lot of the actions in the hips are like uh, actually if you're turning with your hips as opposed to turning with your shoulders uh, if you're turning with your hips that is half of the shrub and then you know actually running sort of more of an inside line often there's marbles and trails down here there's a lot of marbles on the inside line so rolling up the inside and and initiating the change of direction with your hips um, is a lot of maybe 50% of the start of shrulping. Yeah, and maybe uh, if, if he is looking to shrulp and we've understood it, good enough is getting the traction, well, for the tires to cut loose, then start with a foot out. Start doing some skids. Start understanding the, the level of traction on the ground. And then from there, you can 
put the foot back on the pedal, turn with the hips, you know? Instagram certainly likes shrilping. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I, I, I like the question and I think you can shrilp at any age. Shrilp to your abilities, shrilp to what makes it fun for you. You know, a 20-year-old shrilp's a little different to a 52-year-old. He might have responsibilities and kids and bills, so he might not be able to shrilp too hard, but he can for sure shrilp and, and uh, hopefully have uh, put a smile on his face. That is the amazing thing about mountain bikes. I'm not much younger than that guy who's uh, sent in that question. And I can tell you I'm having just as much fun these days as when I was a six-year-old um, shredding around my garden on uh, – I don't even know what kind of bike that was. There's, there's so much fun to be had riding. Yeah, man, what a great way, I think, to end it. This was Moving the Needle podcast. We're calling it World of MTB, Episode 2, Miles Kelsey, the legend. Follow him along at Bike Network, uh, based in South Africa, but literally is a journalist on all things bike-related, does his own skills clinics. And uh, thanks to everyone for sending in questions. It seems like we're gaining traction here. We got good response from the last one, but... This episode and this series is for you guys as the listeners to say thanks as well as we want to give back. We've got a lot out of the sport. And if a little bit of advice or shit talking from Miles and I can get you out on the bike or riding better or safer, hey, job, then we'll be happy. So send us those questions. Direct message us. us uh, give us the feedback. I know I harp on it. Uh, if you did enjoy this and maybe you've got a mate that uh, – likes to use YouTube as a coach, but you can see he's still struggling, send him the podcast. Um, that'll go a long way. Like, subscribe, you know, do all those things. It, it really helps us. So, yeah, thanks again to Miles and to you, the listener. You're welcome, Needles. Thanks for having me. Yeah, keep sending those questions and this was, a, this was a good batch. Some interesting stuff there. This episode is brought to you by Kenda Tires. With over 60 years of experience in manufacturing tires, Kenda has been offering high-quality rubber products for bicycles, cars, light trucks, motorcycles, ATVs, trailers, carts, golf carts. The list goes on since 1962. With offices and factories across Asia, North America, Europe, Kenda distributes its products globally and employs more than 10,000 people. Now listen to this number. They produce more than 800,000 tires and tubes daily. It's easy to see why Kenda is one of the top five largest bicycle tire manufacturers in the world. Now, I am lucky to be supported by them, and I helped design, develop. I was involved in the passion and the work that they put into developing the new range of bicycle tires that they have that people use and compete on the World Cup circuit. 